Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me today. Before I begin, I need to pray. Father God, we just come boldly before your throne of grace. We thank you so much for being full time in our life. We ask that you please allow us to receive your word today. Let it resonate in our hearts. God, change any and everything that is in us that is offending you, that is displeasing to you, God, that is dissatisfying to you, any and everything, God, that is preventing or prohibiting us from fulfilling your plan, will, and purpose in our life, God. Please allow your will to be done in our life. Uproot those things. Pluck them out of our hearts. Allow us to focus on your plan, will, and purpose for our life, God. We need you, Lord. And so we just ask that you please allow us to be able to fulfill your plan, will, and purpose. Keep our hearts softened and melted for you, God. We want to be able to hear your voice. So, God, let us follow you in every situation and circumstance, no matter what it is, God. We thank you so much. We ask that you keep our ears softened to hear your voice. Allow us to be able to read your word and interpret it, Lord God. Let us perceive the meaning. Let us be able to just walk in victory, no matter what the situation is, Lord. We just believe in you and we trust you, Lord, and we give you glory, praise, and honor. Most importantly, God, I just pray that you please allow me to minister your word today. Don't let me forget anything, Lord. And um, thank you so much for giving us access to the Holy Spirit. Thank you for allowing us to be able to commune and um, talk to you. You're always tuning your ears to hear our voice, God, and we appreciate it. So, um, God, please allow me to minister grace to the hearer, those that which is edifying to those that are filled with hopelessness or despair, anxiety or depression, God, let them just be able to um, get solutions for some of the things that are going on in life. And um, let me be able to um, give the word today in a way that it is congruent to those that are listening. Also, God, um, thank you so much, Holy Spirit, for filling me up. I just pray that you don't let me forget anything. Allow me to um, speak about all of the things that I need to talk about today. And uh, most importantly, please allow your will to be done in our life, God. We give you glory, we give you praise, and we give you honor. Um, and most importantly, Lord, please allow your will to be done, your will to be done in our life. Not our will or anyone else's will for us, God, but your will in our life. In the name of Jesus Christ, it is sealed in your atonement blood. Thank you all so much for uh, joining me today. I had to log out and log back in. So I do apologize for starting a little bit late today. Um, but I'm really excited about um, the discussion today in regards to the future of ex-offenders and being able to combat recidivism. So... Uh, I wanted to go over a few housekeeping rules. First, um, if you have any questions at all, please go ahead and put them in the chat. And when I see them there, I will respond to you. Okay. Also, if you're um, if you're interested in becoming an author, please go ahead and send your request to info at Sudden Changes Corporation dot org you can become an author or if you needed to complete some um mandated community service for a court 
or if you wanted to volunteer, go ahead and send that email to info at suddenchangescorporation.org. Also, if you wanted to get prayer, we I have the Sunday prayer line open every single Sunday. Um, you can send your prayer request in to Laws Life Health at suddenchangescorporation.org. Okay, once again, that is Laws Life Health at suddenchangescorporation.org. All right. Um, so, oh, also, if you wanted to suggest a topic at all, or if you wanted to um, maybe comment on one of the topics that's already been discussed, maybe you saw a status or a post that I created online on social media and you wanted to respond to it there, go ahead and um, send me an email at Deanna Watson at suddenchangescorporation.org. Okay. Thank you all for that. So um, now just kind of moving forward, I would like to talk about the future of ex-offenders and being able to combat recidivism. So let's see here. Give me one moment. Okay. All right. So, so last week, I know I had covered quite a bit of information in regards to understanding your position in God's kingdom, right? So too many times, you know, we we're going just going through life and a lot of people, they just do not know or even understand their position within the body of Christ. So God created the man to be the head of the house. So we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in verse 3 that it says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man and the head of Christ is God, right? And so the under to be able to understand that you need to be able to comprehend and interpret what the Bible is saying. So there's so many people that when they're reading the Bible, they may say, well, I don't really understand it. And, you know, um, it's just hard to fully um, grasp the, the ideas that are being conveyed in the Bible. Right. But, you know, God does give you the ability to communicate with him. So you may not be able to fully understand the word and whatever it is that you don't understand in Matthew chapter seven and seven, the Bible tells us, let's, let's just go to that scripture and just read it. Um, we're going to go to, uh, Matthew chapter seven, Matthew chapter seven and verse seven. Okay. So this scripture tells us eggs and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Okay. And for everyone who eggs receives, the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, the door will be open. So I want to read on to verse nine. But So let's continue. It says, which of you 
if your son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you will have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So I wanted to read that entire section there because it really correlates with the relationship that you have with God. So when you ask God for something, he is going to give it to you. Okay. It, when you believe and you don't doubt in your heart, you just know that you can trust God. If you go to work every single day, you're trusting that your organization is going to pay you for the time that you work today. Because most employers, they are not paying you in advance, right? So if you go to work, you're going to be waiting on your check to be deposited into your account or mailed to you, right? So if you could trust people and trust that a job can pay you what you've worked for, then how much more do you think and believe that God will take care of you? God is the creator. We are his creation. And so what that means is that anything that we ask for and we are asking, we're seeking, we're knocking. You want to understand God's word. You have a thirst to understand God. You want a relationship with God. You want to just know how to talk to him. Maybe you don't know how to talk to him. The first thing you say to God is, God, teach me how to talk to you. I want to learn how to pray. I want to learn how to talk to you, God. I want to learn all of these things so that I can have a better relationship with you. Whatever it is that's bothering you, you need to ask, seek, and knock. That's simple. And what God is, what the word is saying here is that God is simply saying through his word, Look, if your son asks for bread, are you going to give him a stone? If he asks for fish, are you going to give him a snake? So if humans who come from a, a nature of uh, deceitfulness many times, right? You know, um, some people, they may you may have a contract with somebody. And in that contract, they don't want to pay you. Right? They don't want to pay you what you're worth. Your job don't want to pay you what you're worth. But you know your worth. So many people, they have these deceptive practices that they do. And guess what? They're deceptive. You ask for something, they agree to it, they don't do it. This is a direct correlation with this scripture here. The, the scripture talks about if your son wants bread, are you going to give him a stone? Absolutely not. But if you go to a job and, and you know, you are just say you're doing a contract with the organization and all of a sudden they don't want to pay. They can't pay. Something came up. They can pay you this, but not pay you what you're worth. You know, deceptive practices. But see, God 
can be compared to that. God is supreme. He's the highest of the high, the king of kings, Lord of lords. He is the creator. We are his creation. And so what that means is that if we ask God for some bread, he's not going to give us a stone. And no, if you ask God to give you something to eat, it probably is not going to fall out right onto your lap, but it might. It might come from someone, they may come home with some food. They may be able to, you might walk somewhere, somebody might pay for your groceries. Having faith in God aligns you in favor. Having faith in God activates favor over your life. And so God distributes his love upon you continually. Over and over again, even when you lack communication, even when you're not talking to him, when you talk to your sister every day, that shows that you care about your sister. If you talk to your brother, your cousins, or your mom and your friends, you talk to them every single day. How often are you talking to God? See, what you spend the most time doing those are the things that, that are important to you. So you have to make time for God. It's okay that, you know, sometimes we slip up. We all have fallen short. But see, God uses his children and we are supposed to help each other and remind each other when we're slipping, when we're messing up. So, for instance, like I've been on this, I have been working all day since about five o'clock this morning, literally. And it's like, oh, okay, so I am a bit overwhelmed, but not too much. Why? Because God has been walking me through the entire process of all of the goals and all of the things that I am accomplishing. I'm including God in my life. He's included. I told God, I say, God, you know, I don't want to make any choice, no decision without you being included. I want you included in everything. And I mean that from my heart. So even when you're messing up, all it takes is for you to say, God, I'm messing up right now. Please help me, God. See, it's, it's what you do right now in the now. Not later. In the now is what matters. So I want to go to this. Um, Today, I really want to talk about the future of ex-offenders and combating recidivism from a perspective of a single parent household. Okay. This is very, this is crucial because there are so many single parent households and there are so many children that are without their parents. Some, some children are without parents, plural, meaning mom and dad, right? So although they live in the house with their parents, you know, they, they may never see them. Because one part, one parent is at work, the other parent comes home, the other parent has to go to work. Then, you know, like, so the schedules are off, you know, then in a single parent household, you have 
one parent who's really providing everything for the entire household that really, really causes the separation of children being properly guided. Because that single parent has to go to work. That single parent can do extracurricular activities at school. That single parent can't do the homework every night. So there are a lot of things that is happening within the single parent household. And so I would like to look at this. So the kingdom of heaven is a place. The kingdom of heaven is also a position. So if you want to um, understand your position, you it begins with you. So it does not matter whoever wants you to change. It doesn't matter. You have to identify within yourself what it is that you want and how you want your relationship with God to be. How do you want your relationship with God? What type of relationship? How how consistent do you want to communicate with God? It isn't about, okay, well, I haven't had a chance to talk to God today. Okay, do you have a chance now? You could talk to God when you on a on a taking a restroom break. When you in a shower. When you're eating, when you're doing your hair, when you're doing your makeup, whenever you have a chance normally to call family, friends, associates, network, and partners, and you know, whenever you have a chance to do that, instead of doing that and calling others, call upon the name of the Lord. So I have a, there's a video that I want to play. There are, are a couple of videos, okay? I also would like to talk about a couple of different books. And I also would like to provide you all with some statistics. And so hopefully, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get through with that today. But I'm going to try, okay? So um, this first um video is from... This first video is a video of Jamie Foxx where he talks about his father um, going to prison, his dad going to prison. And there's another article, there's another um, YouTube video that talks, that's a TED Talk. And um, this is a video um, by Stephanie Gonzalez where she talks about the denial and also some of the statistics for single parents and child with single parents are um, like pretty grim during this time. Um, but she really gets into talking about being raised in Chicago by her single mother and her older brother. So she's an honor roll student and she has constantly tried to do her best in everything and everything for the sake of self-achievement, right? And so... Um, she at this time she's a 16 year old 
So it's really amazing for a 16 year old to actually um speak on TEDx. And I find it quite amazing, okay? Um, but I want to play that video. It's it's about nine minutes long, and um, this one, other one is from Jamie Foxx. It's only about a couple of minutes long. So I'm gonna play these videos, and then after that, I'll reflect. Okay. If you have any questions, please go ahead. Once again, put them in the chat. All right. Thank you. Am I right in Jamie, that one of the reasons why this story kind of resonated with you is because your your own father was in the system? It, you know, it, it's personal. When Michael called me up, I was so humbled and honored to be a part of the project. But doing this project, it's personal. Um, being a black man and uh, and the perception of us um, in America is that we've already, we're guilty of a crime. And I could personally touch it because my father, they put my father in jail for $25 worth of illegal substance. They put him in jail for seven years. Oh. <gasps> This man was an educator in the hood, in the, in the inner cities, educating kids. The judge that he would have come to the school and talk to the kids presided over his case and put him in jail. And what they didn't understand was their father taught me everything. Taught me how to throw football, um, basketball. Taught me how to play tennis. And I was like, why, why am I learning how to play tennis? He said, because I don't want you to be limited. So me as a young black kid in Texas, some of my childhood heroes were Vitas Gerolitis, Eli Nastasi, uh, Yannick Noah, Ivan uh, uh, Lindell. So when they put him in jail, however, what, we, what do we do as a family? And I don't like visiting jail. I don't like that type of perception. So I, I said, I, I told my pops, I, I, I can't come see you because I see you as a king. But I wrote him, I wrote him a letter. I said, hey, you know, things have gotten good for me. When you get out, I'll save your life. And he's been living with me for 20 years now. Oh, wow. Same house. Yeah. And here's the good part about it. He loved tennis. So I got a chance to take him to the U.S. Open when he got out. And we watched Venus and Serena play. And we sat there and, and tears ran down our cheeks. But when he got a chance to see this movie, he said, you tell that, that young brother, Michael B. Jordan, keep doing what he's doing because this is so uh, important for us. Yeah. Okay, now I'm, I'll play the other video now. Good evening, everyone. So, when you think of a typical American family, what comes to mind? A while ago, people would have thought of a mom, a dad, and maybe a brother or sister. Some people still do, but in today's society, there's been a huge increase in single-parent households since the 1950s. Many children are living in a single-parent household with only one parent for support, love, and guidance. And about 200,000 children are living in a single-parent household in only the state of Illinois. In fact, I'm one of those children, living with only my mom and my brother. 
no father in the picture. But imagine that. 200,000 children living in only the state of Illinois. Just think about how many there are in the whole United States. And I know some of you are in this room right now. For the most part, children in these families have single parents because they are either going through a divorce, a parent chose not to stick around, or a parent has passed away. This takes a toll on children's emotional and social lives. It controls almost every part of their lives. They grow up differently because parents have to take on two roles and are under more stress trying to support the family while at the same time being there for the kids. It doesn't always work out well because while worrying about other things, another might be left out such as just being there for the kids. Speaking to a consultant from a single family organization, Single and Parenting, Kathy Fallon had mentioned that the most common problem in a single parent household are parents being too busy working and providing for the family. Not enough time paying attention to children's emotional needs. So children become depressed and detached from their social lives because they have other responsibilities and have to cope with their problems at home. Eldest children ended up, end up having to take up so much more responsibility taking care of younger siblings or even taking care of the household because they are the oldest. In my home, my brother is 10 years older than me and he's always been obligated to take care of me hearing, watch over your sister, watch over your sister. Even now, I'm old enough to take care of myself and he's, my brother Rodney still has to watch over me sometimes. Even though he says he doesn't, he always says his, he's only here for 911. My mom never brought around any other person in the family. I guess not to step on my, on my brother's toes with him being the man of the house and to not make me uncomfortable. I've always saw my brother as a role model and a father because he was all I've ever known since, yeah, since I was little. So it's always just been me, my mom, and my brother. I have a friend and for half of his life, he was happy with two parents and two siblings. When he was eight years old, his father had passed away and this took on many new changes in his life. He started to feel depressed and didn't cope too well with only living with one parent. Describing his situation, he had said, it's harder on my older siblings because without a dad, they had to look over me. So being the youngest, it was definitely easier on me. My mom was gone most of the time working, being the breadwinner in the family. So she was only there for whenever she needed to be. It was hard getting used to one parent. I didn't cope too well, and it was worse because people would mention their families, how happy they were, and I would kind of break down. I dealt with it by holding it in. However, I feel that I am su successful coming from a low school like Marsh to Jones. It is a real step forward for me. A lot of people like to say that minorities, people living in low-income families, or just people in different circumstances are doomed to fail. But that is not true. 
Children in single-parent families are disadvantaged for the most part, only living off of one parent's income, having one figure for guidance, and going through numerous changes in their life along with stress. But they can overcome this. You can't let these things take over your entire life and let it change your path. It's almost like letting someone tell you that because you're short, you can't jump higher than the next person. Or that because you're a woman, you can't achieve more in life than a man. In middle school, my friend and I would like to walk around Cal Park and visit the beach. Two years ago on one of these walks, she had confided in me about her parents' divorce. This girl's name is Gabriela Pantoja. Now, look at that smile. Nobody would really think that anything could be wrong with her. I had asked her what it was like going through the divorce, and she responded with, my parents' divorce has made me an emotional and bitter person because I'd never tell anyone what was going on, so I kept my emotions aside so that people wouldn't pity me or see me as a victim. It makes me very angry, but despite the changes, I feel that I am successful with my attention more towards my education to get my mind off the divorce. My parents serve as my motivation to do and be better. Gabrielle is just another example of how hard it can be transitioning to a single parent household. When I would think of my situation with my family, mostly my dad, I would listen to this song called A Trophy Father's Trophy Son by Sleeping With Sirens. I felt that it explained my situation almost perfectly. And my father isn't in my life the way that I would want him to be. But listening to the lyrics, I related so much and would sit there in my room. Oh my gosh, Brittany. What? Just listening to them or thinking about them. Father, father, where have you been? It's been hell not having you here. Why are you walking away? Was it something I did? Did I make a mistake? Cause I'm trying to deal with the pain. I don't understand this. Why are you running away? Tell me please, I need to know. Is this what you call family? I realize I'm fine without my father in my life. I've been doing well without him all because of my mother and brother. I get just as much love from my mom as anybody else. I know that I can overcome living like this and not let it take over my life. Andrew, Gabriella, myself, and my brother are just prime examples that you can succeed only if you try. Living, with the, living in a family with only one parent as the breadwinner and supporter, with children having so many different responsibilities and emotions, is a struggle. But people can overcome this. If you are one of these people, don't keep everything in. Talk to somebody that you trust or talk to your parent. Try and do well in school. If you're a parent, even if it's for five minutes, spend that time with your kids. Stay positive. It can make such a difference in your life. The smallest thing can make the biggest reaction. You just have to take that one step. Thank you. Hmm. Okay, so that was a really good um, video.
Um, mainly because she was 16 years old. She says she shed some light on her friend going through um a divorce with or watching her mom and her her uh dad go through a divorce was really hard, right? And so it does impact children. The problem is is that many people that are in underserved communities, it can be very challenging for children that are like maybe in elementary school and also in high school mainly because they are left at home a lot by themselves when a single parent is at work like stephanie gonzalez just explained you know her her mom was always at work when someone is at work, predominantly, most of the time, away from home, those children um, are really outside. Sometimes they are seeking the help of neighbors, maybe community uh, members, people that they are um, close to, you know, within their family. So everyone else is actively involved in their lives except for the person who really should be and that is their parent so this is a disparity in marginalized communities and there are so many people that are really suffering from the fact that they are in single parent households and so the lack of resources that are being provided to sort of neutralize these disparities are really um, are really obsolete because many of the children that are um, sort of disadvantaged, it's difficult for them to be able to go to after school programs. Um, and if there are other siblings in the household, you know, it's really even more difficult for them to be able to go out and, you know, maybe do some extracurricular activities at school or, um, you know, maybe just do some tutoring if they needed tutoring. Because a lot of schools, um, for instance, in Chicago, they have like after school matter programs where they offer tutoring. Um, they offer so many different programs after school for students but many of those students are unable to take advantage of them because they are always at home and maybe they have to take care of their brother or their sisters so that that could be an issue like stephanie gonzalez said her older brother was someone who's there you know to make sure that she was okay period you know and so even though he was a young man growing up he he's probably felt some type uh you know he's he's probably felt in a position where he had to grow up at a pretty young age because he had to take care of his sister so there are a lot of different things that happens and um that really, really needs to be discussed in single parent households. So moving forward,
I want to talk about, um, oh, let me reflect on Jamie Foxx video. So that video of Jamie Foxx was about three years ago, according to YouTube. Um, and so he was pretty emotional discussing some of the issues with his, his dad not being there and, you know, his dad going to jail, um, and so when he, when his dad got out of jail, he's been taking care of him for 20 years, you know? And so that's really good. And you have that going on a lot too, where you have children and their parents are not, it's not like they don't want to be in their, their child's life, but they end up going to jail because they, you know, might feel like this is the only way that they know how to make money. And so they may sell drugs or they may get into trouble with, in order to do anything to be able to be a provider. I mean, Jamie Foxx is saying his dad went to jail literally for $25 worth of drugs. You know, and he went to jail for seven years. That's a pretty long time. So sometimes some people are made examples of, you know, they may do, they might get in trouble and the judge might make an example out of them, you know, and, and it sounds like that was a pretty harsh sentence. And I've actually never heard Jamie Foxx sound so passionate about anything in his personal life. Not too many times. There is not too many times where you will hear Jamie Foxx talk about anything personal. Well, at least I haven't. So for him to reflect on his dad and then he was, you know, like getting that emotion there. Um, you know, it just it shows the impact of an absent parent. And see, that parent was absent because of jail so it doesn't sound like he would be a a, a parent that would want to um you know just be absent he even wanted him to learn how to play tennis so he can do better he wanted him to learn uh, everything he didn't want him to be limited in life so, like, there are parents out here that really want the best for their children. And in order to be able to maintain those type of things, we have to really focus on the intersectionality of what is causing these type of disparities in marginalized communities. So, like I said the other day, the intersectionality is um, a theory made by Crenshaw, um, Kimberly Crenshaw, and the, it ha, it's like a many people have misinterpreted this theory. But if you think about the intersectionality theory, it really focuses on how it to intersect the problem. Once you ha have been able to intersect why A is causing B to occur, 
then you can really sit back and address some solutions to combat the issue. Because year after year, after year after year, there are so many things that are taking place in underserved communities that is continually hindering communities from thriving. Not just the community, it's really the community members. And so I really want to focus on some of this stuff today. Okay? So hopefully I'll be able to get through it all. But um, I really want to pay close attention to the single parent households and understanding how intersectionality basically is the X and Y axis of why something is happening. So why are there a why is there a high number of single parent households? Um hold on one second. I wanted to pull this information up. Okay. So, according to the uh, the Pew Research Center, okay, the United States has the world's highest rate of children living in single parent households. Okay. What is what they did a study. Um, the Pew Research Center did a study of 130 different countries and territories. And what they show was the United States has the highest rate in the world for single parent households. It also shows that a quarter of the United States children under the age of 18 live with one parent and no other adult. So that's about 23% of the population of children. And it says more than three times the share of children around the world who do, who do so is about 7%. So this statistic is 3% of the children in China, 4% in Nigeria, and 5% of the children in India live in single parent households. Canada is about 15%. So what we can understand from these statistics is there is a serious problem in single parent households within the United States. So, looking at this a little further, it says, it says here that globally, 38% live in extended family homes. And in the U.S., only 11% do. So, what does this tell us? This, this tells us a lot. Okay, it says that the United States men that are over 60 and older, 
55% of them live with a partner and no one else. So the men in the United States, more than half of the men in the United States that are over the age of 60 live alone. So now you also have four in 10 women, which is about 39% who live alone. And now you also have a third of the women ages 60 and older who live alone. And so this, these are some staggering statistics, very staggering to look at. So it shows within the United States, it shows that a two-parent household within the U.S. between the ages of 0 and 17 is 67%. You have um, single-parent household at 23%. And so you have a large number of children that have children. 67%. These are staggering numbers, okay? So when I look at this, it, it really makes me think about um, it really makes me think about when, uh, I read this book. So there is a great book that discusses the housing projects in Chicago, Robert Taylor home. The book is by, um, Vin Katish. And let me pull it up here. It's by Vin Katish, 2002. And, um, basically... This book, let me go back. I clicked on her profile instead of the book. So I read this book a long time ago. This book is so good. Okay, everybody needs to go and try to get you a copy of this book. It's called The American Project, The Rise and Fall of a Modern Ghetto. So what um, Vin Katish talks about is the public housing development and how post-World War II, so World War II is the Civil Rights War, okay? This is the war during the time when Dr. King and the Civil Rights um, Black Panthers were going about throughout Detroit and, and the cities of Chicago and many other cities when people had migrated from the South and to the North, right? When this had happened, what, what had taken place was there was basically a race riot. And not too many times people do not talk about this, but post-World War II, 
but a civil rights war, okay? We're talking about people slaughtering other human beings because of the color of their skin. And so during this time, I'm just going to give you one analogy. And this analogy is about when Dr. King was in the city of Chicago. He wanted to, you know, um, do a peace march in Cicero, Illinois. And so during this time, he was not able. Well, he did do the peace march, but other civil rights activists, they didn't want peace. They wanted to die for their freedom. Give me liberty or give me peace, right? And so they wanted liberation. They didn't, they, they were tired of the, the social segregation, the racial segregation, all of these disparities, right? And so they wanted war. And so during this time, Dr. King tried to do a peaceful march in Cicero, Illinois. Now, Cicero, Illinois was one of the places that had um, a very high rate of racism and discrimination, prejudice, and all sorts of discrimination and all type of social, social exclusion. And so you have people that were in other civil rights activists, I would say, they wasn't for marching in peace they basically you know you were either going to give them freedom or they were willing to die over their freedom and so that was what was going on it was basically a race war during a civil rights war where um president lyndon johnson he actually got on the phone with dr king to try to neutralize the situation within the united states because it was pretty much chaotic everywhere. Even President Lyndon Johnson had to send in the military. And when he sent in the military, oh, it was chaos after that. But he sent the military in with rubber bullets. But some people still died with actual bullets. So I'm not sure how that works or how it worked with doctor i mean uh president uh lyndon johnson but he was supposed to really you know um make sure that the people were safe so the presence of the military was only there to sort of help neutralize the death rate and the um the physical violence that was taking place right and so what happened was when you think of the emergence of the projects this was something that was like not really beneficial to minorities. And so this was a, a, a very huge problem. And so right after all of this during the civil rights war and everything, there were so many people that were displaced. Okay. There were a lot of people that had been murdered. Um, a lot of people that had went to jail for protests all throughout the United States. Um, President Lyndon Johnson really didn't know what to do. But I talked about this on my other podcast. This was actually my first podcast, um, which was the case for reparations. Where I talked about President Lyndon Johnson trying to, you know, create 
these bills to sort of um, help provide relief to underserved communities. And so a lot of people were displaced. But unfortunately, the real goal wasn't to really help marginalized people. It really wasn't to help people um, sort of get out of these um, situations of inequality and inequity. So you had the people who were in the South, which is, so you have the Union, which is in the North, and you have the Confederate, which is the South. The slaves in the Union, they were already free, okay? Once many of the uh, minorities migrated to the North, what happened was they were there and they were free, but they just still had these inequalities, right? The segregation was so strong, specifically in Chicago, Illinois. Um, so when you think about how they tried to neutralize these social inequities, right? Well, they created housing projects. So the housing projects, the the this book by um Vin Vin talks about the rise and the fall of the modern ghetto. Okay, how it is synonymous with the black urban poor and how isolation and overcrowding cause drugs, gangs, violence, and neglect within the um projects. Okay, and so this book is amazing so when we think about opportunity housing projects was not really created to really help people what they wanted to do is give you a little one little dot of land where where all of the uh my minorities could live and so that was whenever you um have a place that's overcrowded it was nothing that but problems that happened thereafter. All problems transpired after that. So the housing projects only contributes to the selling of drugs, gang violence, neglect, discrimination, and social exclusion. So this book basically talks about the story of the housing complex and, and provides a very comprehensive understanding about how poverty is entrenched in the housing projects okay now i want to let you know that my mom and my grandparents grew up in the housing projects okay and i did too as a kid so we my, we moved out. There are a lot of different things that happen, and I want to let you all know that the housing projects is not a place for you to live in the long term. Okay, um, it creates a poverty mentality that God doesn't want. Right. So to uh, to better understand how um Lyndon Johnson created these projects, this is what he did. Um. Lyndon Johnson on the housing initiative. So he had this was called this was called the Housing and Urban Development Act of 1965. 
okay he tried to implement this housing uh program to help stabilize marginalized people but really in fact majority of those people was never on drugs and so when they moved into the housing projects they began to use um drugs opiates all sorts of things and it caused a really really bad um separation of um stability of parents within the the housing community so um parents many parents were um kind of like segregated with their children because a lot of uh some people were using drugs and it caused problems not not only that but now you have the gangs um that emerged and wanted to take over a uh, certain turfs or territories where you can stay on this side of the building you can't go over here or you can't come on this block you you could go stay on on that side of that project but you can't come on this side of the project so overcrowding overcrowding causes a problem but when you really think about what really happened i mean it, it's really it was horrible it's horrible to think about it so let me see if i could pull up this video i'm gonna try to see if i could pull up this video on um Hold on one second, because I have another video to, to look at. One second here. So please do go and get the book. Um, It's a great book. It's, it gives a very comprehensive understanding of the housing projects and how it sort of delimited the um stabilization of marginalized people to be reintegrated into society and what it did it provided a way for them to stay in poverty and 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 you know it didn't create real substantial opportunity okay and so that wasn't congruent to their lifestyles and so hold on one second i'm i'm trying to pull up this i didn't think i was gonna pay i was gonna play this uh this video this other video but i think it it may support It may support this uh, article. So let's see. Okay. Hopefully I got the video here. I'm hoping I do. So just give me one second. I think I have a video. I'm just waiting on the computer to load. And also, um, Vin, Vin Katish is a great author. Okay. And has wrote a number of different books um there's another book called gang leader for a day a rogue sociologist um takes a, a account of that um so she, 
this author has a couple books out. And so you'll be able to, you know, chime into some great literature there. All right, here we go. Let's see if the, I'm hoping that, trying to see. I guess I didn't put the the oh maybe it's here could be there I don't know no no that's not it one second it was definitely mm, maybe it wasn't in that one. Uh, let's see. Could be another one. If I find it, I'll post the video. I do have a lot to discuss tonight. So, um, I want to try to get through this here. But that would have been a great... Let me see if I could pull it up on this. Um, If it's not in this other spot, I'm just gonna post it later. I would have loved to play it though, because it's really it was really interesting to listen to. It was okay. So now, um, let's turn to our Bibles to First Peter chapter two and verse sixteen. Okay. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Amen. Live as God's slaves. And so what that what that means is that, you know, God wants us to be free. But he doesn't want us to use our freedom as a way to, um, you know, justify evil or justify a means to an end, right? So just because you went through a situation where, you know, you was discriminated against, it don't mean that you have to go out here and hate people, you know, because everyone isn't that way. Everyone isn't going to treat um the next person uh you know evil or have these type of uh segre segregation um thoughts towards another race so just because you went through an experience with one person doesn't equate to all of them being that way right so it's essential for us to be able to learn how to live life and forgive people because if you're not the problem is, is that you're going to go through life and you're going to be bitter. So God doesn't want you to be bitter. God doesn't want you to give up. God doesn't want you to feel that just because you went through that experience, that that's how it is everywhere. 
because it isn't. It isn't. It isn't that way everywhere. So God really wants us to be able to do things differently and to stay positive. So I want to, um, I found the video. I'm not sure if I'll be able to post it. It was, it, it's actually a video from my school. Um, but maybe I can find it online and post it that way. So I'll try to post it, but if not, I would like to play it right now. Um, it's an hour long, but I'm not going to play. <laughs> I'm not going to play the whole video right now. So I'm going to play this small little section here. That I think is very, very interesting. Okay. So let me go ahead and pause it. Okay. So this is a video. It's through. It's by Bill Moyers. Oh, I'm sorry, Bill Moyers Journal: Race and Politics in America Cities. Okay. And so I am going to play it. It's brief. I'm only going to play it a few minutes, maybe about ten minutes or so. born out of wedlock can you ever deal with these issues unless you start with breaking that cycle well if you if you look at single uh, mothers uh and and i love this analysis because uh there's been a lot of studies on the the increase in unwed mothers which i think is not a good thing for our nation uh, uh but as much as there's increase in the, in the black community the proportion of unwed mothers between black and white stay the same so it may have increased it's actually increased in both so a lot of these issues and i often say that if you want to take the temperature of america and where we are as involving as a country, it's good to dip into a, the Latino community, the black community, because you get a clarity of uh, the urgencies that our nation still faces. But that does not mean that these aren't real issues uh, within the white community or in America as general. What's the most stubborn reality that you face here in Newark? Um, it is a spiritual crisis of people not believing in the greatness of who we are. And I know in my experience, and I've dealt with some of the most difficult situations our country has ever seen. If you take away options for people or where they don't believe, rightfully or wrongfully, that there is hope for their lives in, a, uh, in the pathways in which we as Americans view as the righteous path, uh, they're going to stray, people are going to stray from that path where they feel they have limited choices. I mean, take, for example, a 15-year-old kid, and I see this, who's growing up uh, in a household with, with ha perhaps their, their parents are not present, um, and they are not getting the kind of education available in their schools, and we have some very challenged educational institutions in our nation, um, and they make a mistake, and instead of uh, uh, smoking marijuana or caught with a significant amount, and they don't have pretrial interventions available to them. They don't have lawyers to come and help them out. Uh, and they get thrown in jail. They come out maybe weeks later. And now they have a criminal conviction. They have a criminal conviction. They have no education, uh, formal education. Uh, they have nobody there to mentor them. All these things begin to mount up to them. And they realize I have no other option or believe that they have no other option. Then the than to continue in the drug trade, which is so easy and right there. It's an, it's an economic engine for them that gives them respect. They are making dignity. What? what one might say in the rawest form, and I don't believe it, I think it's a spiritual deficit, but in the rawest form, they might say that this is a rational economic decision that they're making. But here is America, and what is our response to that? Uh, we could just line up and deplore it. 
We can say that we need to build more prisons and hold these criminals. Or we can say, let's end this madness and look at practical policy decisions that we can make. Such as? We can make an, a, a great investment in an, an alternative to detention program that statistically is proven through long, longitudinal studies to reduce recidivism by 60-70%. But we don't invest in those programs Why? on the front end. Because, because of blackness, race? Uh, I, you know, I, I don't think it's as simplistic as that. You have to understand, race now is ground into a complicated crucible uh, with poverty uh, and so many other issues, geographic dislocation, you name it. What we have to realize is we can get caught up as pundits sitting there talking about sound bites and race, which is so not helpful. Or we can say, hey, black, white, or whatever, let's change policy to react to the concerns that we have. My passion, my life is not about trying to create justice for one group over another group. It's to understand that we are one nation. We're in this together. We're either going to race together to the bottom or we're going to rise together to the top. But you're you're dealing with the reality right here in Newark. Yeah. And and, and, and that is a, the, the statistics, the, the, the facts, the figures are all right. but devastating. But that's, and that's the, that's the attitude I'm competing against, where people say that we face this leviathan of, of, a, of, of a problem that's so implacable that we can't deal with. Corey, and I've heard this so much, we're, we're 40 years where we've been dealing with these problems. I have people, the most sincere individuals, come to me and tell me, oh, mayor, murder, it's going up all over the country. There's nothing you can do about it. This year, it's even going up in New York City. What can you do about it? Well, here we are year to date. We're down 70% on murders because me and a group of very committed grassroots activists and police decided we were going to choose a different way. We have a choice as Americans. We can continue to talk about problems, and I will not have the same conversation when I'm 70-something years old with my child. Uh, we are going to shut up in this city and fight. So what's the strategy? I think this is what the... I've got a nationwide audience all over the country listening to the mayor of Newark. What is the new strategy? It's not civil rights legislation. We did that in the 60s. Billions of dollars have been poured into the cities. Billions right here in, in Newark. What is the strategy that you think people living in urban areas all over this country... Uh, should follow to deal with these intractable, real, grim uh, facts on the ground. I, I say simply this. Don't look at government to do it. Don't look at somebody else. Look in the mirror and ask yourself, I benefit from this nation. I benefit from incredible sacrifices. What am I willing to do different this year to make a difference in the problems in America? You're saying that to these black kids who are going to being arrested and being sent to prison. Absolutely. And I've, I've sat with those kids uh, that, you're, that you're talking about at this point. I've sat with young people as a mentor and looked them in the eye. It's your life. It's your destiny. You choose. But I'm telling you this right now. You know, King, again, said it so much more eloquently. It's not the vitriolic words uh, and the violent actions of the evil people that threaten us as a nation. It's the appalling silence and inaction of the good people. And we as Americans have to understand that change will never roll in on the wheels of inevitability. It necessitates sacrifice and struggle by true warriors. Is that money? Do you need more money? You know, there's no simple answer. And that's the but knee, you, you, that's you, a knee-jerk reaction to spend more money. Well, you know what? I can show you places in the city of Newark where we're doing more with less simply because we have good people stepping forward and saying, I'm not going to tolerate this anymore in my nation, in my community, on my block. They're doing mentoring programs. You have grassroots leaders, young black men starting up and starting organizations like Prodigal Sons and Daughters here in the city of Newark, 
welcoming people back to the community because if you are a Christian, that's one of the seminal stories. If somebody's coming back from doing wrong, you don't just point a finger at them and say, bad, bad, bad for the rest of your life. You get up and you embrace them and you help them and you put them mm -hmm. back. And I see people in our grassroots doing that. I hear groups like Stop Shooting, young black mm -hmm. men who just said they're tired of seeing what's going on in their communities. And they reach out, they mentor, and they work with people. The power of, a, of our country always has never been the leadership. Please, the civil rights movement was done by young kids, that, young people that we will never will know their names that made this country change. I'm struck that you've been emphasizing so-called quality of life issues. You're picking up the litter on the street. I've, I've, I've heard, read that you'll get angry at somebody in the car ahead of you who throws wrappers out on the Yeah, on the I'll street. stop. I put my lights on, pull them over, and, and <laughs> so give them to trash back. Because it's all about the spirit. It all comes down mm -hmm. to a, a spiritual transformation. And if your city looks messy, um, we have a lot of challenges with that in Newark, with litter and legal dumping. Uh, if you're unkempt, uh, it's all about self-respect. It's all about the spirit. And it all starts with how you feel about yourself and what you know about yourself. Look, I, look, I, I'm not saying I, I ran for to become mayor of the city of Newark because I wanted to make policy changes. And we're doing it. We're getting uh, ex-offenders hired by going out and talking to companies and saying, hey, if we train them, if we give them soft skills, if we help these men to understand who they really are, will you hire them? And companies are stepping up and doing it. We're creating incentives to help them, free legal services to help our, 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 our brothers and sisters coming home. So we're making clear policy changes. But at the end of the day, I need that law firm, like the one in the city of Newark, who's willing to give those free legal services. I need those companies who understand that you can do good and do well at the same time. I need the, the churches who are willing to run some of the programs. But you need jobs too, don't you? Yeah, but, but the thing is, if you reimagine your economy, how? If, if you, How so? Oh, there's so many ways. Look, we have to uh, save inner city buildings like the, the city of Newark. We're hemorrhaging energy. Uh, uh, nobody's weatherized uh, the city of Newark. Nobody's looked at insulation. So all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, you could save money, millions of dollars for government, for schools, for, uh, for businesses if you weatherize, if you uh, insulate. And all of a sudden you realize, wait, you've created a business model right there that you can create uh, businesses and therefore jobs right here in the city of Newark running around and doing these things. If you reimagine your economy and realize and go to people and say, wait a minute, you've got a law here that makes no sense whatsoever preventing young black men who have criminal convictions from getting jobs in the port area. Why are you denying in the port the, area? In the port area. Or let me give you a worse. I had a guy that came to my open office hours who couldn't get a taxi license because 20 years earlier he had a criminal conviction. He wanted to be an entrepreneur, but yet government was restricting his ability to get a uh, license because of 20 years ago. Every state in America has these nonsensical laws that undermine the potential of individuals. There's so many things that we can do that are sound, rational policy that are not right and not left, not Democrat, not Republican, that are American, in my opinion, that we all can agree on, but we're just not doing it. And any elected leader like me is betraying their office if they run for office and they sit in office and say, government's going to do for you. What I'm looking for in leadership, whether it's my president, whether it's my governor, whether it's my mayor, I want leaders that are going to ask more from America. We've seen the specter of race intrude into the presidential race. And I know you experienced it when you were running because some people said, some blacks said you weren't black enough to be mayor of a basically black city. How is race playing out in your, in your life here now? I think that's a, that's the frustrating thing for me often is the dialogue I hear on, on the news uh, in the media is very different than the dialogue for real Americans on their everyday lives. You know, I spent a lot of years of my life, you know, did uh, my undergraduate studying urban issues. I did my master's degree uh, studying that. in law school. My focus was all these issues. And I could sit here and give you a, a treatise 
on, on the causal factors of racial disparities. But at some point, I think we need to start having a conversation about what are we going to do to solve it. What I'm trying to say is, is that you can get so caught up in looking for blame. Who's to blame? Uh, uh, is it societies to blame? Is it white folks to blame? Is it the, the, the prisoner himself to blame? But at some point in America, we're going to have to get beyond blame and start accepting mm-hmm. responsibility. So, again, I, I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm, I'm not that old, but from how old are you now? 38 years old. Uh, but I'm already getting fatigued with the conversation uh, and feeling that there's a dearth of action. That, that, that it may be in vogue right now because we of this presidential election to talk about race and uh, to study and to flip it over. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, is it going to motivate action? We've had the courage to deplore the reality in which we live, uh, but we have we showed the equal courage to do something about it. Not wait, not point a finger, uh, not sit and have debates about a divided America, but to get into the trenches, uh, to roll up your sleeves, to do the hard, difficult work it takes to manifest the greatness of this nation. America was born out of collective sacrifice, out of a lot of fights and a lot of struggles. And here our generation of living Americans has to decide what they're going to do. If they're going to sit back and just let this be a spectator sport, then we will devolve in the same way the great Roman Empire did. But if you're willing to get up and continue the fight, to continue the struggle, to understand that we are not a nation who has manifested their ideals, that when our children pledge allegiance to that flag, whether they're in Newark, New Jersey, or Beverly Hills, those kids are saying words, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all, that are aspirational. We haven't achieved that. And therefore, this generation has to manifest the same struggle that my parents' generation did and my parents' parents' generation did. But the founding fathers who proclaimed life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as our ultimate values also nurtured slavery in the cradle of liberty. Absolutely. And I love that that that, uh, that uh, civil rights leader that said constitute, constitute. I can't say the full word. I can only say two-fifths or three-fifths of the word uh, because uh, Americans were, were judged, in, uh, black Americans or Americans were judged in that fraction, that in a very declaration of independence, Native Americans are referred to as savages. Uh, obviously, there is racial uh, a divisiveness, a degradation uh, uh, that seeped into the very founding of our, of our nation. But the beauty of America is that the people of this country, black and white and Jewish and Quaker, saw within this nascent nation, uh, saw within it the, the very manifestation of the divine and helped this country overcome itself, its limitations and its divisions, and created a nation in which I'm proud of, but ultimately which I know is not complete yet. If, if, you're, if you realize that, what are you doing about it? If, if that's a, the final question people should ask. What am I doing uh, uh, to, to, to deserve this country? I'm an American. That comes with an obligations. Uh, we have a Statue of Liberty on one side. I think we should build another statue in this country uh, called the Statue of Obligation, uh, the Statue of Responsibility. And people should understand that by the very nature, people are fighting to become citizens of the United States of America, willing to do whatever it takes. But we're taking for granted what that legacy means watched you since your first race, which you lost. I've watched you on the city council. I know that you're trying to move us into a new direction. How do you adjust to not being able to do all the important things you want to do? Um, I'm stubborn, uh, and uh, I made a decision in my life what I'm willing to die for, what I'm willing to live for, and uh, I'm, I'm, I've maybe called it an arrogance uh, to believe uh, that I live in a time where me and my team members and my uh, community uh, can do anything. And I've often been criticized for it. <laughs> I've often been told I'm unrealistic. Uh, but I think this country was uh, formed 
on, on realistic ideals. I've also been the subject of death threats. I've been, I've been, I've been uh, the subject of death threats. I've seen my share of violence uh, in, in my, in my, in my, in my days. A young man died in your arms. I, I had a, I, a, a, a tragic situation where a kid was uh, uh, shot and, and fell backwards into my arms, and I held him as he, in vainly trying to stop the blood. It, 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 you have a choice to make every day. Will you be a, a will you do everything you can despite the circumstances to generate love and light, or will you give in to the darkness around you? Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe uh, that in this city uh, that I love, uh, I've been able to connect to so many people that you will never read about or see on TV. Mm -hmm. Not people who are involved in debates about race on TV, not people who are pointing fingers, but you see these neighborhood leaders on their block step up we take time to sweep in front of their house, but even a little bit further down the street, even though they don't own the property, who watch the kid walking home from school and ask them how their day is, ask them what kind of grades they're getting. Uh, the, the, the tenant leader in my building, when I lived in some projects, uh, who uh, on Valentine's Day or St. Patrick's Day, she ain't Irish, but yet she's she's collecting money from other residents to, to, in the basement of the building to have a St. Patrick's Day party for a bunch of black children. This is the spirit of America. You know, this same tenant leader, I'll never forget, her son was murdered in the building in which we live. And I remember saying to her, why would you stay here after your son, who served in the American military, no less, and was came home and was, was savagely murdered? And she folds her arms and looks at me with toughness, and she says, why am I still here in Brick Towers, these, this, these high-rise projects? And I said, yeah, why are you still here? And she says firmly, because I'm in charge of Homeland Security. Amen. Now, here's a woman <laughs> that gets it. It's not about the president. It's not about the congressperson. It's about me. This is mm -hmm. my country. I'm going to fight for it. I'm going to remake it in the image of our ancestors. I'm going to show that love will prevail over ignorance, over bigotry, over division, that I will unify our country through my spirit, through my blood. And if everybody stopped talking and started focusing on doing something more than I did yesterday in order to change tomorrow, then we're going to have the America of our dreams. We remember the Kerner Report for its searing conclusion that our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. African Americans at the time were fast becoming concentrated and isolated in metropolitan ghettos. And the Kerner Commission said that by 1985, without new policies, our cities would have black majorities ringed with largely all-white suburbs. The commissioners acknowledged that government policies like urban gentrification and the construction of huge high-rise projects had helped to blight stable black communities. So they offered some specific and practical remedies, new jobs, affordable housing, and new steps to confront the destructive ghetto environment. But following the civil rights movement of the mid-60s, the peaceful marches and demonstrations, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the riots triggered a mounting white backlash. LBJ's escalation of the war in Vietnam added fuel to the fires. The Kerner Report was published on March 1st, 1968. Hardly five weeks later, on the 4th of April, 40 years ago next week, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Flames again engulfed dozens of cities, and the possibility of large-scale change perished in the blood, ashes, and racist toxins. Okay. All right, so that was a pretty interesting video. I was able to post it onto the um, website. 
So I'm not sure how long it'll be there, but the that's not the full video. It's a partial one. I put the link in the description where you can actually purchase it. It's about $100, um, but it's a very informative video. And so I wanted to kind of reflect on a lot of the things that he said. First, he said about the single parent household, including the um, ability for programs to combat recidivism and so that's the main discussion here is the recidivism um part and how communities really need that type of relief in order to help generate the ability for people to obtain long-term housing careers family support right and so all of these things is something that is really causing the demise of minority communities and so i want to talk about some of the main points here so let's look let me go here so some stats on let's look at some statistics so 60 percent of those in custody have been in prison before okay so there is a high rate of individuals that are repeat offenders and so what happens is is when they get released from jail they really don't have a lot of opportunity to be able to rehabilitate themselves back into society because once they went to jail now they've tarnished their record and it could prevent them from obtaining long-term employment. And yes, there are a lot of different programs out here within the city. Um, mainly, you usually your mayor's office or your local senators, they do offer programs. But these programs are not being taken advantage of. Why? Because... There is a lack of communication to minority and marginalized communities. So yes, there are organizations that will provide like supportive services. They have, um, they have a lot of different jobs that some companies are hiring for. For instance, you have the work opportunity tax credit and that's called WOTC. And so the work opportunity tax credit actually will pay an employer $5,000 to hire someone who had been uh, released from jail. So someone that is an ex-offender, right? And they're trying to obtain a job. The government will pay an employer up to $5,000 or even more in tax credits depending on what that person qualifies for. So if that person is receiving like financial assistance or uh, food stamps, it just say if they are a single mom and she's released from jail, she's getting uh, public assistance and she's an ex-offender, they offer incentives to employers to hire individuals that are returning to work from jail. So there are a bunch of different um, programs that offer help to help uh, combat some of these problems with um, 
ex-offenders being able to be reintegrated back into society. So let's um look, let's look at the real term of recidivism. So according to Merriam Dictionary, recidivism is a tendency to relapse into a previous condition or mode of behavior. So recidivism is relapsing into criminal behavior. So how are we going to prevent criminals from relapsing into criminal behavior? That's what it is. And so when we look at the statistic, let's look at this for a second. It says around half of adult police arrestees self-report having been arrested at least once in the past 12 months with 18% in that time. It says one in four adult offenders released from a community corrections order will return to corrections within two years of being released. One in four adult offenders will return right back to the criminal system. The modern day slavery system. So you also have um, one in three juveniles appearing in youth or, or children's court will be reconvicted before the age of 18. Juveniles. So we can influence recidivism by enhancing education, enhancing employment, including addressing uh, mental illness, you know, mental, mental health concerns, bad uh, physical health, including drug and alcohol uh, use, substance use disorder, right? So... Also, they have younger prisoners were more likely than older prisoners to be re-imprisoned following their release. Within 10 years of being released, the re-imprisonment re rate for teenager groups was 64, I'm sorry, 61% compared to 23% of those 35 years and older. So 61% of juveniles will return back to jail according to these statistics. When I really do get into the, the nitty gritty part of these statistics, I'm gonna be talking about um, crime and education. There is a direct correlation between crime and education. Okay. Um. But I'm not going to get into that today. What I'd like to talk about is there is an article from um, GatQuestions.org. And it talks about what the Bible says about being in jail or prison. Okay. Um, so there is one particular scripture that I like to talk about. And that is um, Romans chapter 6 and verse 18. And it says... And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So that's what that's what God wants for us. 
There are so many people that are struggling. They're going through all sorts of things in their life. We don't know what somebody is going through. That's why I, I tell, I tell, um, I tell my kids and everybody, look, if I'm in a car with you and you driving and you see somebody angry, just, just get away from them because you do not know what anybody is going through. Get away from that driver and pray for them because that's all that we know how to do. That's what we should be doing all the time. We can expect that we're going to need to pray. So I wanted to um pray for the people that um are going through recidivism, okay? And so they are repeating their same behaviors. So let's pray for them. And I also want to pray for um the people in Tennessee. So I did pray already about this, but I didn't mention it on my podcast. And so I would like to have more people just agree with me in prayer for the tornado. It was a tornado in, um, you know, like central Tennessee and southern part of Tennessee. And so there were like six people that passed away. And um, a lot of property and people, there were a lot of people hurt and a lot of property destroyed. And so I also like to pray about that too. That's just, um, just a little side note. But um, let's go ahead and just pray for the people that are com- um, that are battling with recidivism. So, Father God, we just come boldly before your throne of grace and we just lift up all of your children to you, God. You know what is going on in this world. You know what the world, the people that, that live in this world need, Father God, specifically your children, including your children that are lost, God. The children that are lost that are suffering from poor education, employment, God, housing. They're suffering from mental health concerns, God. They have, they, some of them may have bad physical health, God. They have a lack of transportation to get to and from their destination, Lord God. They may be suffering from substance use disorder, God. We just come boldly before your throne, God. And we ask that you will intervene on their behalf. Intervene so that they will not continue on living in recidivism, God. Do not allow them to keep on partaking in criminal, repeated criminal behavior that the statistics is saying that they're going to go right back to jail, God. So do not allow them to, God. Do not, God. Prevent Prevent them from going to jail by intervening in their lives, God. Allow them to understand who you are, God. Whatever questions that are unanswered for your children, God, answer them. Let soften their heart and melt their heart for you so that they can understand that they need to cry out to you, that they need to call upon you, God. Soften a heart to call you, God. Soften a heart so that they will pray to you and communicate with you and sit long enough to be able to hear your voice, God, and see your plan, God. Reveal your plan to them. Reveal your purpose, your will in their life, God. 
give them hope again, God. Let them see that there is hope again, Lord God. So we we just ask that you give give them all divine intervention, Lord God. Please do not let the youth continue to go to jail and perish, God. God, intervene for your lost children, God. They are lost, God. But you said that if if one sheep strayed away, you would go and get it. Uh, the shepherd is going to go get the one sheep that is lost, God. You said it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. And so, God, we just ask that all the people that are spiritually sick, Lord God, that you provide them with spiritual health through your word, Lord God. Allow them to receive your word today. And so we we just come boldly before your throne, God. We ask that you just touch their lives, God. We plead the blood of Jesus from the top of their head to the soles of their feet, God. We ask that you get them discernment, Lord God. Let them see and hear through your eyes and ears and let them see your glory in every situation, no matter what the situation is, God. You said do not walk in the way of the wicked. So, God, we just ask that you intervene in a way where they are not focused on anything that is evil or wicked. Do not let them be influenced by anything that is evil, wicked, or demonic, Lord God. Do not let them have empathy or sympathy for anything that is evil, wicked, or demonic. In the name of Jesus Christ, it is sealed in your blood. And Father God, we also pray that you will um, just comfort the people that are in, that were suffering from the tornado and also the, the loss of their loved ones in Tennessee, God. They lost a lot of people um, and just lost the, uh, their homes and all sorts of things, God. So we're asking that you just give them divine intervention and provide relief, not just for the Tennesseans, God, but also for everybody in this world that have been um, impacted by natural or that by natural disaster, God. So we just ask that you provide them with comfort, that you that you heal them, Lord God. You actually just give them the ability to have peace, Lord. Give them peace that surpasses all understanding, Lord God. We want to give you glory, praise, and honor today, Lord. We thank you so much, God. We ask that you, that you just and give them peace that surpasses all understanding. We ask that in your word, God, your word says in Isaiah 53 and 5, that by, you said in Isaiah 53 and 5, for you were pierced for our transgressions. You were crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on you, and by your stripes we are healed. And so, God, we just thank you right now for healing. We ask that you heal them expediently, Lord God. We ask that you just give them the ability to overcome the stress and the, the worry of them losing everything, God. And we ask that you position them, you reposition them and allow them to focus on the things that you have planned for them, God. So we give you glory, praise, and honor in the name of Jesus Christ. It is sealed in your atonement blood. Amen. All right, everybody. So that was um really like, I, I wanted to, I've, I, I should have talked about it on my podcast, but I had already prayed about it. Um, so just forgive me for that. But I do love praying about all things because we have to get into the habit of praying about everything. Okay. So if you all can turn to your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.
right? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So in order for us to understand recidivism, we need to understand the, st the statistics surrounding the issue, right? Um, so the statistic that, that I just gave, we gang violence has impacted communities throughout urban cities within the United States. Their neighborhoods are predominantly underprivileged and marginalized. And they have devastating tragedies of violence in their communities. Um, and they have had these for quite a while. Um, drugs have a direct correlation with gang violence. And so you have all of these devastating issues that are impacting students and also single parent households. So they might be afraid to go to school due to shootings and violence in their community. And then you have people also that feel pressure because of their affiliations with certain gangs. Then you have the, the drugs that sort of impact um, social services and treatment for individuals. So drugs and violence have a direct relationship with how communities are able to thrive. But in order for us to, you know, like understand, let's, let's dive a little deeper into, you know, understanding some of the statistics of recidivism and rehabilitation. So many people look at um, race as a social construct. So a social construct or a way to divide. You can look this up on my case for reparation blog and I've I've attached the link there. Um race is viewed by many people as a social construct because people see diversity but we are all similar in nature but we're innately similar, right? So when we see that race is more than just a social construct and our perception of an individual shouldn't just be based upon their skin color, right? We should be basing our perception on people um, that's, you know, based upon their character, how they treat other people and, and those sorts of things. But we have this perception because race is a social construct that too many people try to push the race this and erase race that you know and they they use race as a way to separate people so when we think of education right we have to think you you would want to think that race is equally distributed but race is not equally distributed for instance, if we look at the Brown v. Board of Education, which helped establish the separate but equal clause, um, it really isn't because it really shed light on racial segregation through residential segregation. So most people, they don't really talk about how residential segregation really impacts everyone, right? It is actually called racial de facto segregation. That's the legal term for it. Racial de facto segregation. And so it's basically like a hidden form of segregation that really impacts students, 
right? So when George Bush, when he was president, he had implemented this bill and he passed this bill into law called the No Child Left Behind uh, bill. No, no Child Left Behind law. And so the No Child Left Behind law basically allowed parents to be able to allow their children to attend schools outside of the district that they reside in. But the problem with that was many students who transfer outside of their district, when they transfer to another school, they didn't feel that that school was welcoming. They didn't feel accepted. Also, um, there were a lot of disparities amongst the school. So, in order to be able to provide opportunity, yes, this was a great idea to sort of implement and see, you know, like how um, a program like this would, you know, really provide relief to eliminating some of the residential segregation that has really kept many communities back. But guess what? It was a short-lived program. I believe the program existed for about five years or so. But, you know, that was a pretty good program to sort of see how we can identify some of the intersectionality of what is taking place in within residential segregation. So gentrification was part of that process of integrating students into a different district than their zip code that they resided in so gentrification basically attempts to try to stabilize communities by making sure that they're able to be integrated into a different community for instance you may have an affluent neighborhood that's really affluent neighborhood meaning that people that are wealthy live in this neighborhood but they're also sharing the same zip code for people that are really impoverished and so gentrification attempts to try to stabilize the um racial segregation but it's really difficult because gentrification doesn't work you have grocery stores where instead of them selling greens, they're selling kale, they're selling other type of program, they're selling other type of food. Um, community organizations are not, you know, focused on poverty programs. They're more so focused on affluent programs and how to, you know, help the infrastructure, like the roads and the streets, instead of helping the people that's in poverty. So gentrification doesn't work. But I'm going to continue this discussion tomorrow because I'm already at my two-hour mark. Um, so let me just go ahead and pray. Father God, we just thank you right now for allowing us to receive your word today. Thank you for giving us the ability to chime in to all of the different things that is going on with um, people that are trying to you know, um, just get their lives back on track, God. So we just ask that you really, really just help families that are struggling, including helping single parent households in America, um, specifically those people that really, really need your help, God. You know the ones whose heart is, 
you know, able to change. Um, so God, we ask that you will really influence the lives of single parents who, you know, are struggling that, but they have a heart for you, God, allow them to be able to change their lives and, and give them opportunity. God use people to help create opportunity in their lives so that they can no longer have poverty mentalities. We rebuke and cancel every poverty mentality. We cancel every single word curse and we command it not to manifest over their lives and it will not have a reaping process we cancel every satanic tongue spoken against them in the name of jesus christ it is sealed in your atonement blood and god we just thank you right now for your will being done let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven god and we pray that you will meet all of our needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, it is sealed in your atonement blood. Amen. Thank you all so much for joining me tonight. I will see you all tomorrow. You have a good night.